And when I started Texon, I told myself and the Lord that I will not let Texon fail because of the little boy in me Hmm. around things like greed, pride, ego, fear. And so it was a wilderness of total of about four and a half years, I think. Wow. And I was on a quest to get whole, much more so than to start a business. That was my entrepreneur project. And this was the first thing I really had conviction of is I wanted to get whole. This is the Redemptive Edge from Praxis. On this podcast, we talk to people who are building businesses and nonprofits that look at the world differently, or we'd say redemptively. They're aiming to renew culture through acts of creative restoration. Rather than using people to advance their mission, they aim to bless people. And they're led by people who aren't living for themselves or even just satisfied with improving themselves, but people who aim to die to themselves so that something beautiful can happen in the world. That's the redemptive edge. It's not so much somewhere you've arrived as a journey you decide to take. And this podcast is about stories from that journey. I'm Andy Crouch, partner for theology and culture at Praxis. A few years ago, I developed a theory about the people who end up at the very top of their fields. I started to think that the only way you end up being at the very top of an industry, a profession, head of a big company, is either by being an exceptionally exploitative person, someone with some deep distortion in how you relate to other people in the world, or an exceptionally holy person, someone with really uncommon wisdom, humility, kindness, capacity for love. And I was thinking about that theory as I interviewed my guest on this episode, Terry Looper. Terry is the founder and CEO of Texon, which is an oil and gas services business based in Houston. Since its founding in 1989, Texon has been consistently profitable in an industry that is usually built on huge swings of boom and bust. It's frequently listed among the largest private companies in the state of Texas and among the best places to work uh, in its home city of Houston. This is a company at the top of his game. So, according to my theory, Terry Looper should either be an especially dastardly human being or an especially marvelous human being. But what strikes me when I talk with him is how totally ordinary he seems, at least at first. And you're going to hear that from the first moments of this interview. And by the end of the interview, you can decide for yourself if this very ordinary guy is also just possibly one of the most extraordinary people you've ever encountered. Let's begin by sort of setting the biographical scene. I was thinking about 15-year-old Terry. And what was it like to be 15-year-old Terry? If we had known uh, 15-year-old Terry, who would we have known? What would we have noticed about you? And what do you notice about yourself when you think back to kind of your high school years, your adolescent years? What were you like? What was driving you? What were you doing? What were you imagining doing? I'd just love to start there. Well, I didn't know I was an entrepreneur, obviously, when you're in high school. I probably didn't even 
I might not even known what that word was, <laughs> but uh, I was a huge people pleaser and to the point that I didn't want to be president of any organization that might have some conflict to deal with or have to take uh, a position. So, for example, I would run for, I got president of the class because he didn't do anything, <laughs> but I... I wanted to be vice president of the student body, and I was because they didn't do anything. But I didn't want to be president of the student body because they had a, a role to play. <laughs> and and uh, I did it through all the key club. I wanted to be treasurer, secretary, or vice president, just not president. I just didn't want conflict. Wow. So I know it was, it was deep-seated in me from the dysfunction of my family. Huh. Um, so, and then I met my wife of 50 years then Hmm. in my sophomore year and we got married and, uh, when I was 19. Wow. It's interesting. Some people who are avoiding conflict, as you said, and out to please, uh, to always be pleasing others would just, just avoid visibility or avoid situations. And what I'm hearing as you describe this is sort of an interesting combination of ambition. Some folks wouldn't try to be any officer in the key club or, you know. Um, Right. It it sounds like you sort of had, on the one hand, this drive to be noticed, to be successful. What do you think was the the thing you were going for as long as you didn't have to be in conflict? (laughs) Well, once I crashed and burned in my mid-30s and did my therapy, I found out I was trying to be noticed Ah. by my parents. Like my dad, I played Little League Baseball, and he never came to a game. Wow. Um, He was a workaholic. And my mother was a very strong, strong individual, tough individual. And so she kind of ignored me. I was the youngest. So I was trying to be noticed. So I had a real real strong drive to achieve, to make money. I knew that, but, you know, back that long ago in high school, it wasn't really a way to particularly make that happen, or I didn't choose to try to make that happen. So let's talk about the ambition to make money, because that became a significant driving factor in your life, I think. And how did that emerge and where did you go to sort of pursue that uh, initially? I've always been where the main thing I'm supposed to be doing is only to a point that I get it to where it's acceptable and then I go off somewhere (laughs) and do something else. (laughs) And I did that all through college. I get my grades where I thought I needed to be and then I'd go be in all kinds of organizations. When I was in college... My mother loaned me the money to buy some five foosball machines. So that was my first time probably to really try to make some money. I laid in bed one time in college and said, I'm not going to get out of bed till I think up an idea that'll make me a lot of money. (laughs) And uh, needless to say, I laid in bed a while. (laughs) I was going to ask how long. (laughs) Back then, I thought an idea was everything. I literally did not appreciate determination Ah. or 
capital or anything. You know, I just thought an idea was 80% of the answer. Uh-huh. And over the years, as I learned, I have a lot of ideas, and many of them aren't very good. <laughs> wow. So at this early stage, it sounds like the perfect life would be being noticed by lots of people, but without ever having any conflict, and then having lots of money, but by just having a great idea. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> you graduated from college, I guess, and found a job, I'm assuming. And how, did it feel like you were getting on, on the track you wanted to be on initially right out of no, college? No, I wanted to go into consulting and eventually sales, and that didn't seem to pan out. I really wanted to go to work for IBM, and the guy from IBM called to set me up for an interview. And because I'd been up all night, I didn't wake up enough, and I told him I wasn't interested. <laughs> so, And when I woke up, I'm going, I had a nightmare of a dream. Uh, the more I realized I'd actually turned that guy down. And I didn't know his name. I didn't know what city he was from. My goodness. Yeah, then I was too embarrassed to go back. <laughs> through my contact and said, would you try again? <laughs> well, so the company that I accepted, I actually sent them a rejection letter. <laughs> so that was an interesting conversation with them when they had a hiring free zone, but they were able to make exception and hire me. At some point, things start to actually sort of click. You start to see success, I think. Uh, when was that? When did you start to feel like, oh, now, now it's really working. The dream I've had is is beginning to come true. There must have been a point where you felt that. I finally got into sales training with Monsanto Chemical Company. It truly was my joy and my gift hmm. yet to be developed. Hmm. Truly was just very, very excited about it. Hmm. And I made a sale as a trainee. And the one thing my boss had told me to not do was to make a sale during my training. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it anyway because I couldn't help myself, and uh, he was pretty mad at me. But the product manager was really happy with me. <laughs> so anyway, I, then I became a salesman. Then I became a what they call a kind of a product supervisor. It's now called a product manager in the home office. And then they sent me to the West Coast as regional sales manager for the West Coast for petrochemicals. Then they sent me to Houston, which is the biggest region for the petrochemicals. Sure. So I didn't want my boss's job or his boss's job or his boss's job. Oh. And that's the only way you get ahead in terms of money at a big company is you got to climb the ladder. So I quit and went to work for a small oil company. Really, it's a demotion going back to being a salesman. But I wanted to get out of a big company. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And then they went bankrupt within um, three months or so of me going to work there. Then a gentleman that I'd gotten to know was starting up an energy marketing company and wanted to know if I wanted to come join him. Hmm. And it was the first opportunity I've ever had. I ever had to have an unlimited income, uh-huh. theoretically. And so that's when I turned on all the energy. Oh, wow. So suddenly you have this sort of unlimited runway to something you really want, which is money. Why was why was that motivating? Not everyone would be motivated by unlimited income. What was it about right. that that spoke to you? I guess once I did all my therapy, I, I think money was a big deal to my mother, huh. and I was wanting to get her approval. Huh. And obviously, we know spiritually it, it was trying to 
plug the hole in my heart that the Lord put there, yeah. but with the wrong thing. Yeah. So the Lord, you know, I've been a Christian now about 35 years, and, you know, it continues to be a journey. And, you know, it becomes less and less as you get older and more time passes and as you work and try to die to self more and more. Well, it's interesting you put it that way, that you've been a Christian for about 35 years. You were actually a faithful churchgoer all these years, I guess. But let's talk about that moment that, that you would really trace to the beginning of your, your active Christian life and what led up to that. Because it kind of strikes me, actually, knowing a little bit of the story, having read the book and so forth, you finally were given like a chance to really get into hot pursuit with this unlimited possibility financially and success-wise. And it strikes me that in some ways you you got it, or at least you got to the top of one hill. And right. it was at that moment of sort of having it within your grasp that, that actually a pretty striking thing happened. And I'd love to have you tell that story a little bit. Well, I was in that company we were talking about where I thought there was unlimited upside, and I grew up in a small blue-collar town. My mountain wasn't as tall as a lot of others mm -hmm. in terms of uh, accomplishment or goal, but I had started becoming dizzy, and hmm. my brain became fuzzy over the years of uh, chasing the almighty dollar. And as we were getting close to selling that company, the dizziness got more intense, and the fuzziness got more intense to where I couldn't think and I couldn't make big decisions. Then I couldn't make little decisions. Then on Saturday morning when I was just at home with the family, my brain shut down. So I assumed I had a nervous breakdown. Mm. Found out later in therapy that I'd been burned out. And that Saturday morning, I finally got on my knees and asked the Lord to take control of my life. <laughs> so I found out later I was born again that day. And the reason I took me about a year to figure that out is because I had been going to church a long time, going to Sunday school. I had been praying. I was giving 10% to the church. I was a deacon. And I was getting ready to be ordained as an elder. So that kind of qualifies you for a <laughs> Christian, you think. <laughs> yes, right, right. But what I was praying to and who I was worshiping was my Santa Claus. And I kind of came up with that term because a four-year-old really does believe in Santa Claus and loves Santa Claus because he gives him what he wants. Yes. And so in in that desperation, you would say that's when you were born again. And, right. and yet it took you a year to figure that out. What do you mean that it took a year to sort of realize that something that momentous had happened? I started in with a psychologist that was very, very gifted and very, very spiritual. Hmm. It was really a repentance process in retrospect. We dealt with a lot of my insecurities and a lot of my false drivers and a lot of my false identity issues. And I started enjoying reading the Bible. I started enjoying a Bible study. And again, I thought it was all honestly due to therapy. <laughs> because I thought I was a Christian all that time. <laughs> right, sure. And finally, it just hit me one day that a person can't change this much just doing therapy huh. and falling in love with the Bible and the Lord and, and being so excited with my relationship with Jesus. And so it finally hit me that I had been born again. 
Well, it also strikes me as kind of amazing that you were committed to and stayed in therapy because as I try to picture when I imagine what 35-year-old Terry was like, the hard-driving, chasing, hot-pursuit Terry, and I've, I've known folks like that, I think, and very few of them, first of all, none of them voluntarily go to therapy. And then people go for a couple sessions, maybe, at a moment of great crisis, but they don't necessarily stay engaged with it. It sounds like you really went the distance in that process of learning and uncovering and, and even repentance, as you say. That's unusual. Yeah. There's a real spiritual change that had happened for you to want that. You know, it's kind of a corollary to the level of pain you have as to how much you don't want it to happen again. <laughs> and thinking I lost my mind, huh. literally, and at that time I considered it my most prized possession. Yeah. And it, it, I said to myself, I will never, ever get to that state again. Huh. And so we launched into uncovering Every I was com very compulsive about it and very, very engaged with it. And I worked really, really hard. And so I just uh, stayed at it. And when I started Texan, I told myself and the Lord that I will not let Texan fail because of the little boy in me hmm. around things like greed, pride, ego, fear. And so it was a wilderness of total of about four and a half years, I think. Wow. And I was on a quest to get whole much more so than to start a business. Huh. That was my entrepreneur project. Huh. And this was the first thing I really had conviction of is I wanted to get whole. Wow. And he started me on the quest of... Fear in the Lord is beginning of wisdom, and he started me on that quest hmm. that has been a journey I've enjoyed for huh. these 35 years. Wow. And many, many people have never even scratched the surface of that, and you spent three or four years because you were so committed to it. That just is very striking. Right. Well, I was very afraid. Yeah. It was true life-changing event you know, like a heart attack or whatever. So people lose weight and start eating fish all the time and kale and all that stuff. Well, mine was different. You know, wow. mine was mine was my brain and my soul. Wow. And I decided to work hard to liberate my soul with the large leading and that psychologist as his tool for me yeah. to the point that I would not go back there. Yeah. Now, if I lie to myself, like if you say, how am I doing? And I say, fine, when, you know, my house is on fire, I get a signal in my brain that I've lied my, to myself. Wow. And then I'll stop and go, well, really, you know, Andy, things aren't very good. Huh. I'll confess my situation. Wow. So it's turned into being an asset for wow. me. Wow. So you go through this profound spiritual awakening. You, you enter into a real relationship with God and Christ. You pursue wholeness, and then you do go back into business. And I, I'd love to hear what was different this time. You've gone on to build a quite extraordinary business. In some ways, you've achieved more than probably 15-year-old uh, Terry ever could have. You wouldn't even have known to imagine it, I would guess. Right. 
Right. But something was different as you were building this time. Right. What were some of the key differences coming out of this journey into a kind of wholeness? Well, back to my great fear in my new relationship with the Lord, hmm. I said I would not start the company first time for me to ever start my own company with my own capital hmm. and sacrifice the relationships I had now finally built with my wife and my daughters huh. and with the Lord. Huh. And so I was stymied of how you start a company and not sacrifice relationship. I just wasn't willing to do it. And hmm. that's when he started teaching me that discernment process of getting neutral, dying to self, all that stuff, to where he finally put on my heart that if I'd have the courage with him to work only 40 hours a week and have no sales metric goals be false gods that I could maintain my relationship with him and my family. That was kind of the pinnacle of that four-year dying to self, falling in love with him and trusting him. Huh. The pinnacle being when you realized that there might be a, a sort of a faithful, sane, healthy way to just start the company— but that it was this kind of crazy, namely only 40 hours a week and no sales goals? I think as I look back, I don't think I've taken a bigger, fearful step forward. You huh. have to realize I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I finally accepted that. I was going to do it with my own money and my own ego. And then I'd never wanted to be number one ever in anything. And I was the only one that anybody's going to look at as to whether it's going to be successful or not. Right. I don't think I've come close to jumping off the cliff that severely since then. I want to ask about those two things. And I, I think that the hours a week, I intuitively understand, like in order to be available for family, to have a healthy life, there's some limit. And for you, it was 40 hours, which is, is not a lot for someone starting right. a business and very unusual. But yeah, how did that come to you, this other idea? I'm not going to have any defined goals for sales. I listened to a tape back then, <laughs> as regular old yeah. tape, and it was, yeah. why, why do I work? But it was making a point that sales goals, particularly in the fourth quarter, start becoming a god. If you're short of your goal, what do you do? You speed up. You yes. put it, reaching it, over being a good father or a good husband because you got to meet your goal. Huh. And then what also happens is you sacrifice the relationship with the customer. You either yes. um, upset him or you sacrifice your margin or you right. sacrifice your volume in trying to press him into making a decision before he's ready. Huh. And so huh. I've since learned it's a huge blessing to not be forced to close a deal by this month where you just stay visiting with them until they feel heard, honored, till they're ready to do the deal rather than you trying to superimpose when they should do a deal. Wow. Wow. In a way, having that goal, that internal uh, target with a deadline, almost causes you to push out onto other people all those same 
dysfunctions yeah. that, that had, had trapped you. Absolutely. And it like propagates through the system. Now everyone's pressured, everyone's rushed. And so by getting rid of that, you actually allow wholeness to kind of flow out through the system to other people. So it's right. not just you who's living a healthier life, making healthier decisions, but actually that customer is given freedom to do that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. In 2019, Terry published a book called Sacred Pace, Four Steps to Hearing God and Aligning Yourself with His Will. The four steps that he outlines in the book are super simple. Number one, consult your friend Jesus. Number two, gather the facts. Number three, watch for circumstances. And number four, get neutral. And this last one is really Terry's big idea. It's what makes Terry... I think very different from many of us when we're facing a big decision. Because the process that he has learned to go through is not a process that's primarily about getting an answer. It's a process that's about getting neutral, which is really another way of saying a process that leads to very deep surrender. Let's talk about this very clear, simple, and totally terrifying decision process that you recommend <laughs> because it's not complicated but it's not the way most of us at least instinctively make right. especially the biggest decisions actually i think right. so first just walk through what the key elements are and how maybe a little bit of how you learned those elements how you were living this kind of dependent conversational relational life with god in this new way well I didn't realize I was, he was teaching me this process. So he was teaching me uh, how to die to self. And then over the next 20 plus years, he started refining it a little more and more. And I finally, after about 20 years of Texan, I started sharing what he was teaching me with others. I call it getting neutral, but I really hadn't shared it with anybody to amount to anything. Call the first step to consult your friend Jesus. And this is a discernment process to eventually figure out what God's will is, and eventually you have the courage to do his will. I call him your friend because he says he wants to be our friend in John 15, 15. And then you say, well, what is a friend? Well, it's a friend is a great listener. Well, hmm. I think Jesus qualifies there pretty well. And then they love you, they support you, they want to help you, they want to hold you accountable. He also happens to see the future, to know the very best <laughs> answer, and love me and everybody that I'm involved in in my life way, way more than I do. So now, to die to self, to jump off the cliff and do his will, you've got to have in your heart and soul some level of faith about who he is to make it worth your while to to want to mm. do his idea instead of yours. If hmm, if you indeed. don't have any faith, there's no one to die to, and for sure it's no one worth dying to. The next step is to gather facts, and that is comes in all forms and fashions. The Bible, the facts of a situation, getting yeah. information from consultants or industry experts or your employees, making a pro-con list of helping yourself see or be able to articulate that, even your motive list to see if there's sin, how much sin is it in your motive for this hmm. pursuit. And then so often 
you think your opinion is a fact because you're not neutral. And, and, and so often somebody will give you a fact. You go, well, I really like that fact because it really aligns with what I want. So, <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> we start picking and choosing facts. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, if you're praying to get neutral, to, to want to do his will versus yours, you start getting objective and start giving them the proper weight. And you start recognizing your opinion really is an opinion and not a fact. And then the third step is watch for circumstances. And there's obviously a lot of circumstances in the world and at any one time. And so you just look for circumstances that might get legs to see if you're supposed to pursue more around that circumstance that is developed. And the fourth step is once you have finally got in your heart and not in your head that no matter what the answer is, you want to do his will over your own. Hmm. And obviously the bigger the problem or the bigger the opportunity or the bigger Hmm. the desire, the harder it is to die to self. (laughs) And the longer it takes. I've never felt like I got his answer until I had died to self. And then he blessed me with peace in my gut. And he'll give you the answer however he's going to give it to you. Once you've gone through this process and you have truly said, no matter what, I'm doing it. If I have to make a decision and I haven't gotten peace, I just don't do it. Yeah. I think this is very significant that we often think the missing piece is God telling us what his will is, <laughs> when in fact the missing piece is us being willing for whatever it is. That's what I think. 90% of the problem solved when you truly want his will more than your own. You know, it's pretty easy to sense his will. And it's hmm. very often I didn't like his answer hmm. because he's also trying to grow me and mature me And so often it's opposite of my emotional, dysfunctional want or need. (laughs) So what's the time when you've been through this process and gotten an answer you really didn't want? Well, starting a company with 40 hours a week, I thought that was suicide. (laughs) But along the way, a lot of business deals that I wanted to do them one way, but they were big enough, I had to take them to the Lord. He clearly wanted me to lift them up and let them unfold the way they were supposed to unfold. Hmm. I've never been disappointed in his answer. I've mm-hmm. been disappointed in myself of either forgetting to do the process or never dying to self to see that his will. Hmm. Now, I've got a lot of answers from him that I didn't like, but they turned out to be a blessing in my life. This idea of getting neutral strikes me as potentially the most (laughs) time-consuming. Oh, yeah, Uh, for sure. Yeah, and I'm thinking about business in particular where you have other people, counterparties in the deal, you've got partners potentially of your own, and everyone's waiting. How how does it feel for others to be in a deal with Terry Looper while they're waiting for who knows how long for you to to get neutral? Does this ever cause frustration? Yeah, you know, I had one of my executives that reported to me wasn't a Christian, and he told me one time, he said, well, Terry, I don't know what you you do and what's going on with you, but all I've learned 
is to trust when you finally have conviction. People have asked me, you know, when they're not majority owner of the company. And the, I was at a practice event last year in New York, and this young lady was sitting next to me, and she was tell, talking about that very thing. And I said, well, have you ever been in a meeting where you had conviction about something and your management didn't? And, I, and she said, yeah. I said, I bet you talked them into it. And she said, yeah. Uh, my, my point is when a person gets that kind of conviction, the rest of the people in the room, whether it's the boss or subordinates or peers, you see it in church meetings, in, you know, elders meetings. When somebody has that kind of hmm. conviction, you go, I think we better go with that. What strikes me about your story since that turning point when you were 36 years old is how much you are willing to learn about yourself <laughs> very intensely for those first few years. Um, but then I have to think that in this process of this getting neutral stage, there's a lot of self-examination that is easy for us to skip uh, and that probably a lot of us would prefer to skip in some ways. And so it seems like you're committing yourself to a kind of self-knowledge and self-examination that might be uncomfortable. Does it feel that way or does it actually feel, how, how uncomfortable does it get <laughs> in terms of your own self-discovery? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> I would say the Lord wants me to continue to discover my blind spots, the level of my sin, and pursue dying to self around them. So it has been a journey. It has been a real journey. Back in 04, I went back to my old ways of kind of being compulsive, greedy, sinful, and it lasted for two years. And when I came out of that sinful season, I learned two things. One, the Lord probably had something to do with this because he taught me coming out of that. I thought I'd been a great servant leader for those first 15 years, and I found out I was a lousy servant leader when I came out of that. I found out that my fear of burnout or not keeping the relationship with my family and the Lord was trumped in 04 because my company wasn't doing well. And it was trumped by my fear of failure that still was harboring inside me. Hmm. And so I took on a quest to fix Texan. And then after those two years, I came out of my stupor and I told my guy running IT, I said, well, I'm back to my old self. Hmm. I've been gone for about two years. And he said, well, hmm. the problem with that, Terry, is the wake behind the ship doesn't settle down very fast. Huh? Wow. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. I said, it's been a, it's been a lot of pain uh, put on people for these two years. Huh? Then in writing this book, which took five years because I'm not a writer, I probably, probably about 20 blind spots he revealed to me while writing that book. Wow. But you're only open through them through pain. And it was the pain mm -hmm. of publishing a book where I never could retract anything and, and it would be looking prideful and not uh -huh. glorifying the Lord. And I just was somewhat haunted by that. 
I actually think many of us who have um, kind of committed ourselves to public life, like publishing, you know, it just means to make public, have experienced this purification that whether willingly or unwillingly, it almost seems like God is uh, graciously committed <laughs> to purifying us. The distance you've come from that that young man who didn't want any conflict to someone who's in a sense, willing to enter into a process that will reveal 20 new things about yourself you didn't want to know. Right. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I want to ask about success uh, and how you view your own success. Because I could imagine uh, folks reading your book or learning about your uh, the kind of trajectory of your career and your business and the uh, milestones your business has hit financially and so forth. And and I could imagine people saying, well, it's easy for him to talk about, you know, getting neutral. <laughs> like, every decision turns up to be on the upside. And even like, believe me, as a writer, I understand what pain it is to publish a book. But from the outside, that looks like one more success. Like, oh, now you have a book. And I'm wondering how you interpret the, the just very tangible markers of success that you have accumulated, uh, how is that related to this transformative work that God did in your life? Because it surely is not the case that everyone who would go through this profound transformation would then end up with all the markers of success, worldly success, that you happen to have. You know, Andy, it's, it's a life journey. I mean, but I'm just now really getting in my soul what the Presbyterians say, you know, is to glorify the Lord, enjoy Him forever, God's purpose in your life. And part of that glorifying the Lord is also trying to get in your soul that what we say are our gifts. And why do, why do we say that? It's because they're from the Lord. They're not, they're not mine. And then to start recognizing, I just tell a friend of mine, I mentor a lot of people, but this one friend in particular, I just said this week, don't forget those gifts are from him, and you're to take those gifts and to glorify him with those gifts. Don't go stick them in a drawer. <laughs> and so by a godly point of view, you're going to have success. And some of, them, some of them will mean earthly success, you know. Yeah, just the success of my family, you know, the relationship with my children and son-in-laws and my grandchildren. What does that look like? What's that success? Honestly, people look at that and go, there's another success of Terry's. Well, I, right. you know, there was a, <laughs> I could cry hard. That's been... That did not come easy, but joyfully, yeah. joyfully, but not easy. Terry Looper. I'm struck by how much he talks about pain. This is someone who is seen in all kinds of ways as successful. But the way to that success was not achievement. It wasn't the realization of ambition, not really. And maybe this is actually true of all real success. It actually comes from walking into and through pain. 
some of which we choose, some of which we never could have chosen and would not have chosen, and being willing to go there. And that is what bears real fruit in a life. Last year, we developed a rule of life for our community at Praxis. If you haven't seen it, you can take a look at rule.praxislabs.org. And one of the six elements of the rule relates to decision-making. And I have to say that of the six, it's the only one that was basically single-handedly influenced by a single person, (laughs) by Terry, and what he has learned about getting neutral. If you want to know more about Praxis and what we do, visit us at praxislabs.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. That is by far the best way to help us find more listeners. And we'd also love to address your questions. And we're getting ready to record a bonus episode based totally on questions that you have. So leave them right in the review, or you can give us comments and questions on our website at podcast.praxislabs.org, where you can also find transcripts and show notes. The Redemptive Edge is produced by Mary Elizabeth Goodell, who in her day job is community manager for Praxis, with executive production, editing, wisdom, sagacity, many other things from Scott Kaufman, our partner for content. And we're very grateful to Narrativo for their editing and production help. I'm Andy Crouch. Thanks for joining us on The Redemptive Edge. Redemptive Edge.